So welcome, everyone. We're going to be talking about building scalable startups in highly competitive markets. Thank you, Esther. And welcome, everyone. I see a few people, Ibrahim, um, Ned, Kende, Peter, Ima, Shei. Welcome, guys. Um, so we're going to be having um, four people really doing the main discussion. I'm just here on the sidelines, just listening and taking notes. Um, so we have Zion Thompson. Zion Thompson is um, co-founder at Startup Launch Code. We have Charles. Charles is the founder of Bizop. Um, we have Karen. Karen is managing partner at Katwig and Dale, a legal um, um, a startup law firm. And then we also have Cynthia. And so we're going to be talking about um, building um, scalable startups in highly competitive markets. And I think I'm just going to start off by throwing a question out there to um, the speakers. And the first thing I would ask is um, when you think about building scalable startups, what comes to mind? Like we're going to dive deeper. We have a few topics. I think we're talking about the idea, the team processes, um, funding and legal. But I just want to um, go top level first. So when it comes to building scalable startups, what comes to mind? So Zan, you can kick us off and then we'll get other people's perspectives. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. I think um, for me, when you talk about um, building a scalable startup, one thing that comes to mind first and foremost is the problem that you're actually trying to solve. So how big is the challenge or the problem that exists in the marketplace and um, how equipped is the, the company? Um, how equipped are they from a team level, product level to fix that problem? And so it's more like fixing the problem that... Um, a large number of people have, and really that's what, um, you know, building a scalable startup at a core element is all about. Okay, Charles, what would you, just on a top level, when you think about building scalable startups, what comes to mind? All right, thank you. Uh, when I hear the word scalable, um, natural, my natural approach is to break it down, right? So scalable means is basically a combination of two words, scale and able or scale and ability. So when you say a startup is scalable, is that they have the ability to actually scale. Um, and then what does scale mean? Scale means to grow or to grow very fast um, or to sort of grow in multiples. So um, a, a scalable startup is basically a, a, a startup that can grow very fast. Um, and I think the key word is the ability to actually grow fast because there are many startups, but not all of them may be able to grow fast, um, maybe because of the nature of the startup or the nature of the market um, or even the actual processes or the operations of that startup might just make it very difficult for them to scale or to grow very fast. So um, that's that's my top level way of looking at the, the, the word or the word scalable startup. Yeah, that's great. I like that perspective. And it's true, it's all in the scale able, you are able to actually scale and grow fast. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to your inputs during the discussion. Cynthia, um, what would you say is your perspective? So um, when it comes to scalability like in, in a startup there was uh, a research that was done by I, I believe Harvard Innovation Labs and what they did was to create like a chart um, where we're trying to define for a startup where where is that point where you say okay this company or this startup or this idea can actually scale right and 
from the beginning, you have the problem need, then fit. So problem need fit, that means the problem actually fits the need in the markets. And then there is the idea need fit. There's the, there's the customer and the product fit. And then there is the product market fit. So it became clear that once a company is able to achieve product market fit, then it's, there's a very high chance that it can actually scale. So the question I'm, you know, came up with like, okay, what does it mean to actually reach product market fit? So if you have a product that people are willing to pay for, if you have a product that um, has that reputability to it, if you have a product where um, you can get more customers who are willing to pay for that product at a certain price point that is able to help the company stay, um, at least generate enough funds to be able to, you know, carry the company along and maybe hit profitability. So, so when I think of scalability, I'm just thinking of a company that has actually achieved product market fit, that has a product that is, is has that re- reputability to it, has a huge market in terms of like the target market, right? And it can actually... Um, then you know that it can actually scale because when you're scaling, it means that you're going to have that repeatability. You're going to have that growth um, along the line. So yeah, that's what comes to mind when it comes to scalability. Great. I actually love like how everyone is like coming from different perspectives. So we have like product market fit. We have just like, are you even able to scale and all of that? So I think that's really good. Karen, Karen, um, yeah, like I mentioned, Karen is a lawyer and I'm interested to hear her own perspective about what it takes to build scalable startups. So Karen, what, what, what's your take? Hi everyone, good evening. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Okay, so when we speak about building a scalable startup, right? Like everyone has said, it's all about, you know, building a product that addresses a need and trying to solve the problem, right? That it was created to solve, right? But I would, I mean, from a legal perspective, right, building a civil startup pertains to, you know, building a product or a startup that is compliant legally, right, as it pertains to the industry that you're creating in. Because, I mean, you can build a product that's addressing need, and of course it will address that need, but in addressing that need, that journey can just be cut short because it's not compliant or it has flouted, you know, rules and regulations some policies pertain to the industry that you're placed within. So for me, building a scalable startup means building a product that addresses a certain need and already has customers you know, mapped out and is also legally compliant to the laws, the regulations, the policy that pertains to whatever industry that product is used that is within operate within. Not just the industry, but also the jurisdiction of where that product is built for use. So yeah. All right, it's great. Thanks, guys. All right, so basically, now getting into the meat of it. So, one of the things we had, um, we had highlighted four major parts to talk about. So, the strategy, team, processes, and funding and legal. Um, and then I think from what everybody said, um, and kind of like I think we all agree that it all starts from the the idea. And then you start whether it's your strategy, your team processes, funding, legal. Um, and I think it's very easy um, in our part of the world, especially because of how fast and how um, the startup space is growing and how much attention is being drawn um, to the startup space. A lot of people don't necessarily um, take into consideration at the beginning what it takes to actually build scalable startups. And they um, end up like hitting a lot of roadblocks um, along the way. And I think um, Cynthia touched it a bit I think Charles touched a bit, but in your own opinion, when we're talking strategy, team, 
um, processes, legal funding, what do you think each of you would be like the most important or how would you say um, the flow of this is what you need to do first when you're thinking about building scalable, strat- um, scalable startups? How does that flow work? So is the first thing to do, of course, you have an idea. After an idea, then what? Um, how do you, is it first about like go-to-market strategy or is it about your team or is it about like you're starting to look for funding? What is you guys' perspective on um, the steps you need to take to, at the beginning, make sure that you are setting up to build a scalable startup, especially in competitive markets? So, um, Cynthia, I think I'll hear you first. All right. Um, That's actually a very, very good question. I mean, um, trying to define which is, you know, the most important, you know, which one do you go at first? I mean, in reality, for an average startup, you're looking at almost every single thing like at the same time, right? Because um, it's either you have some VCs who are really interested in your product because obviously it's a competitive market. It's, it's also an interesting market and investors are willing to invest in startups who, you know, have um, something going in terms of like traction, right? So I, what I'll just give are more or less like for each of these areas, um, how should a startup founder like be thinking about each of these areas so that, you know, as they're building their startup, they, they're well-grounded, right, um, for the future. So in terms of funding, right, so I think the major, most important lesson for any startup founder in a competitive space trying to build a scalable product is understand the priorities of your investors, right? Understand the priorities of your investors, your VCs. Now, the way VCs work is that they give you, they, they observe or they notice a product that can actually scale and they give funding to the startup, give them enough funding so that it can actually scale. So the most important factor for any VC fund is growth, which means we want you to scale and not just scale, but scale really fast, right? If you're thinking 3x, by the time we come on board, we're going to give you enough funding to be able to do 10x. Now, if you have that understanding at the back of your mind, you would know how to sort of um, create processes and systems, think about your customers. I'll give an example. I was speaking with the founder of um, one of the growing fintech companies in in Africa, right? They just received a huge amount of funding and they're going for another round of funding. And he just spoke to me about a particular um, conversation that he had with one of the investors, right? So they presented to the investor that, okay, this is what we achieved in Q1 and this is our projection for Q2, right? And the investor um, spoke to the founder and said, um, I see that you guys are going for 3x. Can you guys go for 5x within this Q, Q2? Do you need more funding to be able to do that, right? So um, on note, like he, he wasn't aware about how serious growth is to found to the VCs. And so he wasn't able to create like the right strategies. He wasn't able to create like the right um, processes for his startup, right? So at the beginning, uh, once you take on VC fund, a VC fund, which is most likely the situation for a scalable product in a competitive space, right? Always have at the back of your mind that VCs are interested in, in you doing it 10 times more than you probably think. So you need to dream bigger right? You need to think bigger in terms of your market. You need to be going, you need to be more strategic with your growth marketing, like your strategies, right? But you also need to really think big. Now, in terms of processes, there, there was a research that was done, um, and this was because of the book that um, 
the CEO of LinkedIn, the founder of LinkedIn, he reached, he published a book called Blitzscaling. And in that book, what he was really saying that as a startup founder, what you're really doing when you're starting a company is that you are you are jumping off a plane and you're supposed to build a plane as you're like falling down. That's free falling, right? So you're supposed to build another plane. It's either you build a plane that actually works or you crash, right? So um, what that research was saying is trying to create a balance where because you're building really fast, there's a very high chance that you would not put processes in place. There's a very high chance that you'll be hiring more. There's a very high chance that you may not really pay attention to company culture. And one thing we always see with all of these companies is that it always come back to bite them in, in, in the butt, right? Later on in years, because I'll, I'll give an example with a company that we're probably aware of, MailChimp. So, um, to cut the long story short, Mailchimp built a fantastic product um, with very, I would say, with no VC funding actually for a really long time. But they were growing really fast because of how fantastic their product was. Um, so many years into the product, um, one of um, the Mailchimp staff approached the founder and spoke to him and said, "I believe you don't have leadership qualities. I think you should go um, get trained on leadership." That was quite a shocker to him. But it actually opened him up. He had to take a course on leadership and like people management. So yes, they had created, they understood that it's important to have the right culture. But he wasn't really, he didn't really have the skills in a sense or the ability to create the right processes and create the right company culture. And that actually affected the company in the end because you're, you have people that are working for you. They believe in the vision, but if you have the wrong processes, you have the wrong systems, and you're trying to like rush through because of how fast your, um, how fast your investors want you to scale, you end up facing a much bigger issue later on. And you have a bunch of people who are excited about the vision, but they don't really see, they can't really build um, the products because they're having issues like internally. And so... When he went for the program, that this that was supposed to be like a leadership course, um, one of the questions they asked him was, what is your company culture? And for the first time in over 10 years of building the product, he didn't have an answer to that question. He realized that he didn't really have a company culture. And so thankfully, he went through that course. He called up the team. I'm like, guys, we need to get a company culture together. And this is after how many years? So these are like the really simple things that most startup founders tend to like forget. So it's really important as you're building processes, as you're building your startup, like really pay attention to your processes and culture. Um, I think I'll stop here for now and like give other people the opportunity to like share on, on the other parts and I'll speak on later. Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. And I think it's so true because I think when we get distracted by what we need to do, we need an MVP and all of that, we think all those little things don't matter. But in the end, if you are building for long-term and for growth, those are things you need to take into consideration as you're building. So that's like, those are really, really great points. Um, okay, Charles, like I know that you're a process guy and with BizUp, you're trying to make like processes so much easier. Um, what is your take on what should, um, when you're building scalable startups, what should you look out, like what should be your focus and what should you look at first, second, third, and all of that? All right, thank you very much, Carol. Um, I kind of I feel like... Um, all of these things are important. All of them come into play um, almost at the same time. And I mean, realistically, some may come before others, depending on how the business is running, right? So let's say, 
for instance, if it's um, if if it's a let's take the example of a solo founder. Um, the person has an idea; is looking to build it. Obviously, at this point, um, he, a team may not be involved, right? Um, most likely, there's some some level of strategy, right? I mean, understanding that strategy basically means a plan of action, right, to achieve a long-term aim, right, or goal. So most likely there is strategy, right? It might be short-term strategy, like, okay, let me just validate this problem, right? So there's still some strategy involved. Team is not yet involved. Um, Processes may not be involved at that point. It's just one person doing everything, does not even know if this is going to become something tangible. So processes may not come into play at that beginning. Funding may not necessarily even also come into play. The person might be looking to just validate or to bootstrap for for a while to get some level of traction. Um, legal may not also come into play at that point. Maybe the person is not even looking to like register a business or anything like that. But as the business grows, um, the, the the problem has been validated, right? Uh, maybe a a a, ver- a version of the product has been built. Um, you've seen that, okay, there's, this product is useful in the market, right? That's when you now start reevaluating this list again, right? If you are looking to get a, a co-founder, right, or to get co-founders, you are already building a team, right, at that point. If you are looking to scale, maybe you want to get money from family and friends, funding is already coming into play. If you are looking to register your business or even when you now start discussing with your co-founders, right, you need to have like a co-founder agreement. Now, legal is already coming into it. You're registering, you're registering the business. Legal is already involved, right? Um, so all these things come into play, right? If it's someone else that is, that is coming with, a, with an idea and is already looking to build a very big company right off the bat, already has access to funding, um, which is very key, he may, I mean, that particular person may need to just combine all of these things at the same time, right? Strategy, team, processes, funding, legal at the same time, right? Simultaneously because they're trying to go big um, initially, right? That's not the approach I would take, right? But there are people that do it, like second-time founders that already have like the network, they already have the access and everything that they need, would need to um, reprioritize all these different things. So I think all of them are important. Um, it, it depends on the approach that the founder or founders are using, um, are taking to build their startup. Um, that will determine what comes before what. And realistically, you don't even need to think about it so much. It just becomes natural to know, especially if you're starting small, what needs to come first, right? Especially also if you are being scrappy about like funding and all of that. If you are taking it, if you are taking things slow. Um, it becomes easier to sort of determine what needs to come at what point of the growth of the company, right? So that's that's how I would um, address um, these different key parts of growing a, a scalable startup. Thank you. Yeah, I also like that because I think it's important to know that like there's no one size fits all. And I think um, usually we kind of like want to look for like the magic pill or what did this person do and kind of copy, but everybody's every... I think um, startups journey is different. Of course, there are some major building blocks, but I think to just, um, I think it's important to just know, like, um, really know what works for you. So I, I think that's really important. Um, yeah. So for people just joining, welcome. Thanks for joining us. 
and we're talking about building scalable startups in highly competitive markets. Um, and then, um, yeah, definitely give us a follow. And we have four speakers. We have Zion. He's the co-founder of Startup Launch Code. Um, Charles is founder of BizUp. Karen is a managing partner at Patrick and Dale. And Cynthia is the founder at Boki Africa. So um, we're talking about what, um, right now we're talking about what founders need to look at at the beginning and what pro progression they need to take um, when thinking about building scalable startups. So, Zan, do you want to give us your perspective before Karen jumps in from a legal standpoint? Sure, fantastic. I, I think um, what Cynthia and Charles said actually makes a whole lot of sense. And um, I kind of look at it from, um, the, like you rightfully said, Pearl, which there's really no... Um, right or wrong, you know, approach to it, you know, so some, depending on where you are, you might start with, but I will look at it first and foremost from the market, which is um, particularly how big is the market size, which is why most um, founders will look at um, the time total addressable market, some serviceable addressable market and some, which is um, serviceable obtainable markets because um, the market has to be big enough for you to say, or should have a potential of growth for you to now define what um, what segment you want to go for and how that will translate into user acquisition and also growth too. So it's much easier for you to um, bring something very creative in a market that has um, a much more um, potential for growth than a market that is not is stagnant. So I think the market now defines what idea you want to come up with. And then that informs also the kind of products you want to build and which in turn affects, you know, who is the, who is the right customer for this product. And then all the strategies you need to bring to, to the table to reach these um, um, customers and um, I think somewhere along that line, legal is also working in place because you're engaging, you're probably happy to share the idea with one or two people. If like what Cynthia said about the MailChimp, uh, there are founders that are right out the bat, the, the main person with the idea really is not, um, understands that he doesn't possess all the abilities and the skills and he involves someone else as a co-founder who probably like um, complements him in certain um, skills that's, would um, be of great value to the company. So it all depends, but I think particularly you need to look first into the market and define how fast is this market growing. And sometimes in a market that is like a trillion dollar market, if you're even getting like a 1% or a 10%, you are profitable enough as a business and you want to look how fast is it going to grow for you to actually take advantage of it and so that you are not um, in a space that, you know, competition just chokes you out. So I think this is my own perspective to it. All right, great. Thanks. Um, Karen, what do you think from a legal perspective, just in terms of like when you're thinking big building um, scalable startups, um, what can you tell us from the legal perspective? Okay, from legal, I think from day one, every founder needs to, I mean, as I think about the idea, just think about everything legal. That's why I say everything legal. Um, I mean, it spans from just your registration to your um, your dealings with your colleagues, that's employees, um, to potential partners, to investors, and of course, um, ensuring that you're compliant 
you know, with the regulations and policies in the industry that you operate within, and also in the country as well that you operate within. Because what's acceptable in Nigeria will probably not be acceptable when you're operating, say, in Namibia, right? Um, so to build a scalable startup, like, you must always, always focus on legal, right? I mean, everything that, that you know, Cynthia has said, Charles has said, Zion has said, they're all correct, right? The startup life is a very fast life. And what I find that most founders do these days is just focus on the product and getting it out there and marketing and hardly ever focus on legal. And then, I mean, coming from a legal perspective, you see that there's some unnecessary issues that founders, you know, have that they really shouldn't have. I mean, I understand that, you know, during ideas to early stage, you're probably bootstrapping at the time or you've only just gotten funding from your family and friends. And um, some people make the excuse that, oh, I don't have money to, you know, look at legal. But if you think about it, Cynthia said to dream big, right? Like you need to think about, you know, where you want to see your startup. Um, dreaming big is all about, you know, telling yourself this is what I want and just working towards that. So if already you dream big, then you need to understand that if you are not compliant, if you're not thinking about you know, the legal aspects of things, it's going to come back and it's going to haunt you. So something as basic as the founders agreement between the founders, right, can actually come back to just haunt you. Something as basic as, you know, employee contracts can actually come back to just haunt you. And mind you, when investors are putting money in your startup, right, they are obviously going to carry out due diligence, right? They're going to go through your, your virtual data room, right? They're going to have to look at some documents to ensure that they're not putting their money in, you know, a startup that's going to fold, you know, within the next few months or in the next few years. Um, uh, I mean, people want to put their money in, you know, what is going to grow at the end of the day. And if you think about growth, right? You need to understand that the society that we live in today is pretty much governed by laws, not necessarily morals, but mostly laws, right? And if you're not thinking about the legal aspects of things, when you probably raise, I mean, the problems might not arise when you've done your pre-seed or when you're probably doing C or Series A. It could be when you're in Series B or C. It could, I mean, these issues creep up. And when you think about it, right, if you had focused on it, you know, when you were starting out or whilst you were building, solving these issues wouldn't, you know, be as difficult as they would be when they creep up, when you're already valued at millions and billions of US dollars, when you're running helter-skelter trying to solve a problem. So if you ask me, right, from a legal point of view, I would say, whilst you're thinking about that idea, once you said, oh, Eureka, this is it, this is the solution, this is the product I should actually build to support this community or to solve this issue whatsoever, you should also think about the legal aspects of things as well. There's so many other startups. I mean, ideas are not um, limited to one person. You're thinking about it and then someone else is thinking about the same thing, right? You, I mean, you should think about your intellectual property, right? You've probably worked somewhere before you've gone out to you, uh, build this product and start your, your business. What happens to the agreements that you've executed with your previous employers? Does that mean that your proprietary rights under this startup are now vested on your previous employers? I mean, these are the little things that are not focused on, but they come out when you're actually worth, you know, millions and billions. And if you're dreaming big, then definitely you put in the work to do that. But why put in the work when you've done all of that and then, you know, years to come or, you know, some months to come, you're pretty much on shaky foundation. I mean, people that build houses, 
obviously need to ensure that the foundation is done right. And for me, I believe that in building a scalable startup, legal is literally the foundation that you have to lean on because every other thing comes back to legal. How you treat your employees come back to legal. How you get into valuable partnerships to take yourself from point A to B comes back to legal. How you accept money and give out equity within your startup comes back to legal. Just everything that has to do with building your startup comes back to legal. So, I mean, to build and to grow, legal obviously has to be plugged in from the earliest points as possible. So that's how I think that, you know, for that, that's 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 a way that I know that you can actually build a scalable startup without you know having issues. And I'm not saying that when you focus on legal, you wouldn't have you know a little issue here or there. Definitely, like there will be issues. But it's always best to have issues on a solid foundation and a foundation that's just a bit shaky. It's just always going to be a problem in the future. And problems when you're valued at a higher you know currency or like a higher valuation rather. Is just always it's really expensive to solve. So all right, I think that's I think that's great, and I want to actually jump into product because there is something major you said. But first off, I think what we can say across board is really just that the bottom line is when you are building a startup. I love the analogy Cynthia gave. I get you are jumping off a plane and you have to build a plane while falling, and if you don't complete it, you are crash and burn. So I think like. As a startup founder and building a startup, especially one that you want to scale and grow to something big, you need to be, get good at being able to do different things at the same time, and but also give every one of those elements the necessary, attach the necessary importance and value to each of them so you don't miss anything. And I think each of those things are really, really important. Um, I want to jump into like products now. There's something Karen talk, touched on when she was talking about and I think that's something that doesn't get talked on as much especially in our part of the world which is IP intellectual property um and I want to just um talk about the product and talk about it from like an intellectual property perspective and what um um what founders need to know in terms of when building scalable systems um um startups and having what IP they need to be protecting and all of that and then I'll also like to get um, Charles and Zion and Cynthia's perspective on what you need to be looking at. Like what, when you are thinking about your product, what should you be looking, what are the key elements you should be looking at when you want to build a scalable style? It's not um, just to like, I have an idea and I'm just going to do anything and then just launching. What key things do you want to hit to know? Yes, I have something that can scale. And I think Cynthia touched on that a little bit. But Karen, let's hear your perspective on um IP for products, especially when you're building and all of that at the beginning, what things should founders be looking at? And then we'll talk about what key elements you need um, for a scalable startup. Yeah. So when it comes to intellectual property rights, I mean, the the rights that you're you know, focusing on are your copyrights, your trademark, your patents, you know, trade secrets, etc. But for the purpose of building a startup, right, we'll focus on the first four. So copyright, patent, trademark, uh, trade secrets. When we talk about trade secrets, this is actually something that is so, so key in the startup space because, I mean, um, okay, first, let's start with this. Let me give an example. So there's this lady, Halima, right? Halima has been working for XYZ Startup, right? And has come up with this amazing idea and has called a couple of, you know, friends or colleagues and said, oh, let's build this thing. I think that it's going to work. We're going to scale. We're going to gain traction, right? But what Halima doesn't know is that in her, employ her previous employ uh, um, employment contracts, her previous employers, you know, there was a clause that, um, you know, probably said that, uh, 
if she bright if she leaves the company and you know goes to start something um it's probably going to be theirs for the first two years or if she starts if she builds something um within the duration where she's an employee for them that is owned by them so typically you find that under ip ip laws right you find that when an employee actually creates um something not just like not just comes up with an idea but builds tangible products or something with that idea you typically find that that is or that ip right is owned by their employer especially when it's done during the course of work or using their employer's uh, resources right now, you also find that there's some employers that go the extra mile to ensure that, because I mean, we're working in, a, I mean, thanks to tech, right? We're working in a very creative space. And because some people understand the importance of owning intellectual property rights over certain things, and because we live in a jurisdiction where these conversations are not had as often as they should, and there is no solid understanding of what intellectual property rights have to do. I mean, when I mean solid understanding, I mean not everyone you know, knows about this, not everyone cares about it, right? You find that there are obviously some people that want to ride on that and take advantage of young people. Now, the startup space is literally, it is it is pretty much led by young African talents, you know, young Nigerians, right? And these people, are, they just care about building and building and building. Now, you've gone on to create something, but you haven't, you know, spoken to a licensed IP lawyer about your intellectual property. I mean, you find some... I mean, some startups that have IP issues when they're probably, they've raised maybe Series B. And then you find that a previous employer has come and said that, oh, um, well, your co-founder had signed this agreement and um, she's, any any IP right that she owns pretty much belongs to us, this and that. And that's a massive problem, not just for that co-founder, but for their team, for the founding members, for their colleagues, for the people that even own equity in that startup, right? So now when it comes to IP, right? You need to ensure that you're protecting your, your rights. As when you're building a product, your product is your identity. Now you can have, you know, a different startup that probably has a similar product. But when you mention, for example, Flutterwave, a setting, something comes to your mind. Their logo comes to your mind. What they do comes to your mind. When you mention um, something like close up, oh my goodness, everybody close up, right? And they own that trademark over that. And so no other person can use it. What IP rights pretty much give you is either the moral rights or the economic rights, right? Now, moral rights meaning you want to be able to have a say on how your rights are being used, how your, how that work you've put out there is being used, how it's being modified, how it's being uh, rebranded, right? Now, economic rights is you want to be able to make money from that IP rights that you own. And that is very, 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 very valid. Everybody deserves to make money from, from that or from whatever rights that they whatever right it is that they actually own i'll give an example something as i mean everybody you know knows um please pardon me this is in no way intended you know on being sexual but everybody knows viagra now the pharmaceutical company that actually came up with viagra literally owns the patent over that and for 20 years they made so much millions of us dollars on just owning patents over that so let's say viagra didn't sell right they're still going to get money from people that come to them to obtain a license to actually create, you know, a drug like Viagra and just maybe something else, right? So um, without, you know, <laughs> rambling, without rambling, I think that the key things that I want everyone to get out of this uh, conversation with is your intellectual property rights are 
very much yours as long as you take that extra step to protect them, right? That trademark you need to protect, that sound, that, that logo, that design, that is your brand and you deserve the rights. I mean, once you've thought about it, you've created it, you own that right over it, right? That copyrighted work, that artistic work is yours and no one should obviously use it without your knowledge. No one should use it without you getting the accolades. So see IP rights as you getting the accolades for your work, right? When you when you when you prepare um, a report or you you write an article, you're referencing an author that is probably even dead, has been dead for 10, 20 years. But they need, I mean, people need to know that you've actually copied one or two from their work, right? It's the same thing as when someone has created a product and you want to make use of it, or you want to use, or someone someone has actually created. Uh, um, a novel invention and you want to make use of it, why should Halima come up with um, a novel invention and then maybe someone else is using it without obviously obtaining you know, a license from Halima to use it? Then that just goes, it, it defeats the purpose of, of you know, working hard and basically reaping your benef the benefits of your hard work. It's like that thing that they say where baboon they walk, monkey they chop. And that's exactly why IP laws are there, to ensure that the creator of a work the owner of a work, as long as you have registered it, you enjoy the benefits that come, you know, from being the owner of a work, pretty much. Um, Pearl, please tell me if I'm going to be right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think we probably have to have, like, a whole other discussion on just legal because I think, like, there's so many levels of it. And I'm sure when you're talking, you, you've you've had and had a lot of experiences of how missing out these things actually Affect. So that's definitely um, a conversation we'll, we're going to get, we'll maybe have another time. Um, I see Charles wants to jump in. So Charles, jump right in. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just wanted to quickly touch on some from, on IP from another angle, right? Okay. Um, yeah. From the angle of employees, right? Yeah. Um, for some founders, they may, which is what Karen mentioned about, like importance of legal right from the beginning, right? There, there, there are examples where people start startups and have people build the start, maybe like the technology or like developers, designers, and everything. But there's no agreement that assigns the IP of that of of what they've done to the company. So you then have a situation where. Um, someone has your code base and literally can decide to sell that to somebody else or build a similar startup to what you're doing because they, I mean, they they have the code, they have everything. There's nothing in your, there's no contract that says everything that you're doing for us, even though we are paying you for it, basically is our property. So I think that's another angle. Or even when people hire like freelancers, um, like freelance developers, freelance designers to work on products for them, they still need for that IP assignment clause in the contract or something that just basically says what you're working on, fine, I'm paying you for it, but still it needs to be clear that I own the intellectual property for this thing that um, you are building. So I think I just thought to uh, mention that angle of IP. Yeah, that's so important. That is so important because the last thing you want is for someone like a freelance engineer to come a few years later and kind of like start claiming, laying claim to what you have. So I think that's very, very important. And I think we can like really just like dive into, um, there are so many levels of the legal aspects that we can definitely like dive into. Okay, I see Karen wants to say something as well. Um, Karen, okay, Karen, go ahead and then I'll jump to Cynthia. 
I totally agree with what Charles said. And because of that, something came to mind, right? Something that is a common practice um, where you find, okay, these days, um, lots and lots of young people are working remotely and they're working for startups, right? But you find that when working with, you know, um, startups outside jurisdiction, right? Because they understand that intellectual property rights and, you know, IP law is not something that we are very, is not part of our core here in Nigeria. Because they understand this, you find some employers, you know, trying to be shady and including a few clauses here and there within your employment contract, you know, that pretty much reaps you of that right, of your IP rights, even for things that you have done, not using um, their resources and not using their work time, but they hide under the fact that it's remote work. And this is also something, this is a conversation that has to be you know, had. I don't know if it's going to be on this call or if it pertains to this call. The only reason why I've spoken about it is because, I mean, these guys are working for some startups as well in other jurisdictions, right? And they're riding on the fact that these are not conversations that we have in this country. And they're also writing on the fact that, oh, it's remote work and all of that. And so you find that many young people are signing away their, their, their rights over their IP, both the ones that have been created and not yet created, you know, just because they're working for, you know, an international uh, um, startup or they're working remotely for a company that just understands that, you know, us young people are not having these conversations about IP rights. All right, yeah, great, great. Thanks. So definitely we need to dive into legal. Um, okay, so I see like we're kind of like um, not running out of time, but we've spent quite some time. So I just want to hear um, um, Cynthia's perspective on um, from a product standpoint, what um, people should be looking at when they are thinking about building scalable startups. And then we'll touch briefly on teams. And thanks. If you're just joining us, definitely um, give us a follow and we'll definitely be doing more of this. So follow Startup Launch Code. And um, yeah, so Cynthia, Cynthia, you talk to a lot of startups. Um, when it comes to the product and when you want to build something that is going to last for a long time, something that scales, something that is investable, what do you think people, um, um, founders should be looking at achieving when they're trying to get that to that, um, I don't know how to say, <laughs> that MVP, product market fit, gold mine sort of space. I, I guess that's the way I'll put it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, that's that's a very good and very important question, especially now when there's a lot of hype in the ecosystem and almost everybody wants to launch a product, right? And this is what happens in, in a boom situation, right? Um, if you make uh, a reference back to the 2000s, right? The 1999, 2000 um, boom that we experienced and then the bust also that we experienced in the space, um, what did we see? We saw that, you know, there was a lot of hype, especially with the introduction of the internet and the capacity of the internet, right? We saw that, you know, there was a lot of interest, you know, in building a startup. I, I, I'll make reference to what Tobakoala said when she was um, building her startup. It, it was more or less like if you're a Stanford graduate or a Stanford student and you're a computer science student, you can literally just wake up one morning and like build a company, right? So what happens in a situation like that is it's very easy to launch an idea. It's very easy to bring it to life because there are many tools that are available for you to um, communicate what is in your head, right? But it's one thing to have a fantastic idea. 
um, invest is also another thing for that idea or that product to scale. And so what happened with the boss was that a lot of companies, um, you know, were washed away, right, in that wave. And we just saw like a very few companies. Example would be Evite. Evite was valued at um, over $100 million. And then after the bust, um, the value of the company went down to tens of tens of millions of um, dollars, which is crazy, right? Especially given the shift within one year, right? So the question is like, what makes the difference, right? What makes the difference? Um, number one is really a, pro- a product that can a product that can scale is usually a product that can be profitable one day, right? A product that can earn, right? Um, because yes, the first few years, you have a lot of investors investors giving you money to just grow. But there's a point in that growth where the, the conversation on the board table is changes, where it's saying, okay, now we're giving you a lot of money. What's your plan? What's your business model? Like, how are you going to actually generate revenue from this business, right? So there was there was a research that was done by Study Top, and what they did was, which is really fantastic, they divided the entire the phase of a startup into three major phases, right? This is very different from the Harvard Innovation Labs um, research. They said the first phase you usually have is the product, sorry, the problem, the problem solution fits, which is where you are you're really focused on customer development, understanding who your customers are and just redefining them, customer personas, understanding their needs. And then the next one is a product market product market fit, where the focus is customer validation, right? How many people are actually willing to use this product, right? Um, because it could be a case of um, customers are not just interested in using the product, but they're also willing to pay. But it's also a case of where there are a lot, there's a lot of traffic, which means you can generate revenue from ads. But at the end of the day, you want to be able to um, convert, convert or move from just focusing or depending on ads to actually having these customers use the product. For example, you have Duolingo, right? So the first few years, investors were pumping money. It was free, but they were going to go on IPO, right? And it was really important that they had to build a business model, which is, we want people to actually pay. And so they had to build um, um, premium products where people can actually pay for that. So that is really key, which is customer validation. Customer validation really comes from product market fit, which is really comes from customers' willingness to pay for the product or a, bus- a, a revenue model in a sense, right? Then the last phase is what they described, um, customer creation, which is where the scalability comes into play, right? Where there's a focus on... There's a focus on growth, but you are seeing that happen multiple times, um, probably with very little effort, but at a very humongous scale, right? So what you, what you see with all of these things is that you, are, you have an idea, um, you're able to confirm if, that, if um, that idea has a fit with a need because you have a case of um, technical co-founders who have a fantastic idea, right? And they're able to build interesting products, but the product doesn't have a need in the market. And so there's nobody who is actually interested in using the product. There's so many examples of companies or startup founders that went through that phase. I'm not going to go deep into that. But yes, you, you want to move from just having an idea in your head to actually interacting with real customers. Because in the end, it's real people who are going to use your products. It's not robots. Right, it's real people. So you need to have um, that phase where you're interacting with customers. You're creating customer personas. You're having surveys, interviews, sessions with them um, in various forms, 
um, focus groups, making sure that you know people actually want to use this and it's not just a figment of your imagination, right? And then once you have that validation from their end, which is saying, okay, I acknowledge that this is a problem that I have. You're not imposing the problem on me. I acknowledge that I have experienced that problem and it's something I'm currently experiencing and all the options I have to solve that problem is not exactly solving that problem. I would want you to solve this problem for me in this way. I would enjoy this better, right? And so you're able to now build a product out of that conversation. And then once you have that product, the question is, um, the prototype that you have created, is it something that the customers actually enjoy using, right? Is this a prototype that they want to come back and use again for them to like achieve the goal that they have in mind, which is where you now have like the product and the customer fit, right? Where the prototype you've created for the idea or the need that you've found is actually in fit with the right target audience. This is super important. There are so many tools and frameworks and models for achieving or for testing that, right? This is just like a series of experiments. And then once you have that fit, you now get into the product market, which is now saying, how many customers are willing to pay for this to actually happen? So when you start seeing like month-on-month on, month on growth of about 20%, 30% and above, right? Year on year, month on month, then you know that you are actually hitting something where this product is actually in quotes viral in the use. You know, you have example of Calendly where um, this young man, I'm sure everybody knows him, Topia Wotona, wrote an article about him. But I think what is really interesting about it, he had the problem himself. He validated it um, by interacting with people in his space. And then the product itself had this vir- virality to it where anybody that uses the platform um, would actually have the calendar stuff um, um, at the bottom, like the logo at the bottom, and then people get to reuse it. And also, if you use Calendly, there's a very high chance that you're going to introduce Calendly to someone else, right? That is probably new to the space, right? Because you're having a meeting with someone else. This is also the case for Evite. So if you have a product that has that virality to it, where people are willing to talk about other people, talk to other people about the product, and you see your month-on-month um, growth rate really hitting towards the tens, that's 20%, um, 30%, then, then you know that you're actually onto something. And the most important thing is that there is a very high chance or there is a pathway towards profitability, which means you, there is a model for generating revenue from the customers, right? So that you can achieve profitability. Because in the end, if your goal is to get to IPO, um, your shareholders want to see how you're going to be profitable. They want to see greens and not reds, right? So yeah, that's pretty much the journey towards like scalability and, and growth. So that's how you, you think about your product. Thanks so much, Cynthia. That's so inten- very, very like intensive and very, um, very like a lot of information. And thanks for that. I think we've gotten like a lot of points for that. Just what should you be looking for and what point should you get to and what you should focus on. All right. So we are just like about wrapping this up. Definitely, if anybody wants to um, maybe ask questions, definitely raise your hands and we'll try to take questions. But Zion and Charles, I'm going to just end with you. And I just want to... Um, ask you just in terms of team and strategy, how do you think um, strategy plays in the um, whole um, building um, scalable startups, like in the whole approach to building scalable startups? How do you think team, what role do you think the team plays and also strategy? So um, Zan, you can go and then Charles will go. Yeah. 
All right, fantastic. Thank you, Carl. Um, I think the role of having a, a, a team of eight players cannot be overemphasized. And um, for a number of reasons, because you are engaging a market that is very dynamic. There's so many um, factors that um, what might be great now might change tomorrow. And so it, it now depends on the synergy internally from the team, the team to actually, you know, make um, adjustments in the product and um, all of that. And yes, there's the part of, um, there's this great idea or vision that you have and you want to achieve. And without having the right team on board, it's going to be a hassle in achieving it. I mean, when we look at the um, companies that are unicorn, like Florida Wave, Mandela and everything, what really um, is like the foundation of their success is actually building A players, you know, having core the, the core team is A players that understand the terrain, that have um, some form of like experience and um, know what right buttons to push at that point in time. And with respect to strategy, right, I think um, for any startup entirely that's, you know, has a fantastic product, the very first thing you are looking for is early adopters of your solution, you know, and um, like what um, everybody knows as a product market fit. Who are the first people that are most likely to do it? Because you have... Um, in the beginning stage, you have limited resources even before you raise funding. And so you want to have a very clear picture of who the customer is, like creating a customer persona, mapping out the customer journey, and you know, just um, knowing where they are, which is what we I I try to like we call it who, what, why, how, you know, who is the customer, what do they want, how do we why do they want it and how do we get it to them? What job and what problem are they trying to solve? You know, and how do we now provide um, whatever products you have as the solution to that problem? So all of this, all of these things are closely knitted together. Like a little bit, I mean, one step too early is a problem. A little bit too late is a challenge. So all these different, um, should I call them ingredients, need to come in perfectly for you to actually, you know, drive massive, you know, growth for um, in any startup. And in early days, acquisition is key. So you want to know how. Um, what channels are used to acquire customers, which customers are, you know, seem to be more profitable to the business. Things like how do you now identify what is your the lifetime value of the customer to the business? How much are you spending to acquire the customers? Which channel is bringing you customers that are more profitable? And then also now looking at it um, holistically as to um, what other markets can you penetrate to sustain your revenue growth and also to boost your acquisition strategy automation and tools and things like that. So these are all things that um, every um, founder business or not, if you're looking to even start a startup, you need to actually take it into consideration because the at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to serve a, a particular segment of the market and how you solve that problem also defines how much growth is promised to you. Although there are also companies that have run for a while, you know, being profitable, but there are still metrics of user growth, your churn rate that will still be checked out. So there are lots of metrics that need to come to play to for you to, to guarantee to investors, whether you're seeking funds or investors that you raise funds from, that this is still very viable. And it's uh, I think when we hear of stories of companies that have raised funds, it is celebrated. But the real work that goes behind the scene in terms of acquisition, you know, expansion, you know, and all of those things is not really even talked about. And that is the headache of actually building a scalable company. So 
I think I'm just going to drop it down. Let maybe Charles speak to that too. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm um, thinking about strategy and team. Um, I kind of have a somewhat different stand, um, not from what um, Zion mentioned, but more uh, different from the more popular approach. Um, the way I think about it is, I mean, thinking about strategy can be very overwhelming, right? When you're really thinking, okay, um, you're thinking IPO. I mean, especially when you're on tech Twitter, right? You're hearing so many things, different terms, different terminologies, thinking about this, thinking about that. It, it, it tends to get pretty overwhelming. So the way um, I look at it and the way I generally advise is don't overthink it, right? Um, strategy is really about, um, like, I feel like business plans, long-term plans, are usually overrated for startups, right? In fact, your 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 business plan, you might as well just throw it in the trash once you launch because the market gives you the reality. The best of plans gets destroyed by market realities, right? Um, so don't overthink it, right? Just think about it as what next, right? Um, I'm of the philosophy that you start small, right? Um, I mean, dream big, right? But start small. Don't overcomplicate the journey. Um, just strategy will just be like, from where we are right now, what next, right? Um, so that you don't find yourself in a situation whereby you don't even have customers yet and you're already thinking about how do we scale, right? Or you don't have product market fit yet and you're already thinking about, okay, what happens when we get our 100th employee, um, right? So I kind of look at it in the sense that I don't overthink it. Just figure out, okay, what's next? Where are we right now? And what's the next thing, right? It's nice. It feels good to say you have a 10-year strategy. It feels good to say you have a five-year strategy, right? But most of the time, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Um, so plan as, as, as well as you can, but just understand that, okay, even though there's a goal, um, you, you can be rigid about the goal, right? You can be rigid about what you're trying to achieve, but just have a very flexible mind in how you are going to get there, right? So you know you want to build a successful company, right? But you're not rigid as to this idea, the way I have started it right now is exactly the same way we are going to move forward. The market can tell you something different. You have to be flexible enough to adjust to what the market is telling you. Customers may not like you may think this is what customers want and you launch and customers are not using it. Flexibility comes into play where you can then review that, adjust, speak with customers over time and understand what exactly they need and build accordingly, right? Um, in terms of the team, I would always say for startups that are, I mean, when you're starting, you don't, don't compare yourself with a, with a business that has already scaled, Right. Usually, startups start with generalists and then specialists. At the beginning of the startup, you want to work with people that can do, can get a lot of things done, people that can do a lot of things, right? But that's not scalable. When it gets to the point where you, you really need to start thinking about scale and growth and all of those things, you can then start hiring specialists. So let me use marketing as an example, right? At the beginning, you might want to get someone that can... Um, run ads, right? Someone that can write copy, someone that can um, manage social media, if that's part of your strategy, right? Um, someone that can that can optimize your website for SEO. Now, these are 
really, really broad skills and they are really they are specialists in these things. But at the early stage of your startup, you don't need specialists. You might just look for someone that can do like a 70% um, level work, right? Um, versus when it's time to scale, where you now start hiring like specialists that can do like a 99%, right? People that can manage teams. Um, a lot of startups make the mistake of hiring really, um, really senior people, right? Or really experienced people that they, they don't, they, they're not used to doing the work. They are used to guiding other people or directing other people, like managing other people to actually get the work done, right? In that case, the startup cannot do anything because especially if you're not funded, right? You need to now hire people and you can't even afford to do it right now. So I would think generalists first, specialists later, right? Um, second thing I would just say is um, document processes right from the beginning, right? Document processes. Um, so our, our own startup, Bizop, I'm obviously I'm biased because I actually run a, a, a startup that is focused on helping businesses document how things are done um, to make them scalable, right? But what we've done right from the beginning is we've documented all of our processes. Like in terms of how do we how do we reach out to, to potential customers, right? If someone if someone say books a demo, what's the process? When we now had to hire one person to help out, it didn't take the person. Normally, you could take the person like weeks or months to understand how things are supposed to be done. But because everything had already been documented, even though that was just our very first hire, the person was able to just get, I mean, just understand how things are done, right? Because everything was already documented, right? Um, think quickly. I think about culture very, 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 very early, right? Determine the kind of people that you really want working with you in your company. Um, this is not about stage of company. You don't bring people that are toxic into your company because you are just starting out because these things scale over time, right? It's like it's like a seed that has already been planted. Like if you're not very careful, five years down the line, you're going to be having, you're going to be subject of a Twitter space um, about, uh, about toxic bosses, right? So you, it's something that I feel like um, needs to be taken taking care of right from the beginning. So those are my thoughts on strategy. Don't overthink it. Think about what's next. Um, don't um, business plans and long-term plans are overrated. Um, hire generalists before specialists. Document things right from the beginning. Thank you very much. Thanks, Charles. That is so good. Thank you, Zion. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Cynthia. Okay, so I'm just going to take a few questions. I see Audrey has a question. And if you want to um, ask a question, definitely request the base speaker so that we could um, let you um, ask your question. And then um, we'll just take a couple of questions um, and then we would get started. Okay, Audrey, you can go ahead. Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Um, even though I, I'm very doomed, I wish I joined in Shadia. Well, um, I, 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 see, I was able to, uh, to get a lot of things from the speaker. And I, first of all, I want to say I, I really appreciate your insight on on how to release, um, make a startup scalable. So um, a quick one here. My question is right because um, most, uh, it's so difficult for a startup to work without funding. Like, uh, I'm a perfect example. I can still remember when I was still um, in the university days, I did what I did. So, one beautiful campus singing app, it was flourishing. But down the line, there was no funding for, you know, for paying for the name and we're paying for, for, for marketing, for social media marketing and all that. 
So my, my question is, if someone has this, this great idea of building a startup, it's one thing to be a developer, it's one thing to write code, it's one thing to build a startup. But the funding that is absolutely required to push this um, startup to, to where it should be, um, how do you think um, a, a developer can go towards that and um, can find a solution to that problem? Because it's a huge problem. I, there are millions of developers that can do Twitter in 24 hours, right? probably an exaggerating. But then it's not just building, but now making it absolutely exhausted. How do we go about this process? It's, it's absolutely important because you want to build, but it's another thing to make what you have built a success. So I don't know if my question is um, clear enough for the speaker. Yeah, I think that's fair. So basically, um, the idea is great. You have the idea, but many times you need funding to get to that next level and to do what you need to do. So what, ha and this is actually a very real issue. Um, okay, so I see Charles wants to take that. So Charles, let's hear you. Yeah, just share my thought. Others can join in um, if I don't yeah. cover it. Um, so regarding regarding funding, right, the way I kind of think about it is um, a couple of ways. First is, build something that is valuable, build something that people want. I mean, that's like the whole Y Combinator mantra, right? Build something people want. Um, it's, you need, I mean, like, you definitely need funding to grow a startup, right? But funding can come in different ways. Funding can come from investors. Funding can also come from customers, right? Um, thinking about funding before building something that is actually valuable, um, is kind of like having it in reverse, right? Even if it works for some people, it's not, I mean, like I saw a statistic that it's actually like 1% of startups that actually get funding, right? So if you, of course, that 1% is very noisy, right? You will hear about it and you will not stop hearing about it. You feel like, wow, everybody is raising money. But the truth is that there are, there's like that 99% that are not raising money or that have not been able to raise money. So if you're thinking of your startup to be VC funded right from the beginning, it's almost like setting it up to fail, right? I kind of feel like VC money or investor money should be like plan B, right? Have at least a plan, right? Have a strategy for how will you make money from this startup from day one, if possible, right? Um, that's one way to look at it. Another important thing is that investors want, like one of the biggest things is traction, right? It makes your conversation a whole lot easier when there is traction, right? So of course, depending on the nature of the product, traction may be paying customers, um, traction may be number of users that you have, right? But when you have traction, when you have people that are paying for your product or something, the conversation with investors is a lot easier. You will not get ridiculous terms of someone saying, okay, let me give you 1 million and give me 50% of your company. Because you have traction, you've already you've proven that your product is valuable, right? Um, so it makes it, it makes it, so I, I would say that's what you really need to focus on. And Traction does not necessarily need to be that you're already making uh, 500,000 naira per month or one, 1 million. No, no, no. Like, let someone pay you 5,000 naira, right? If you can get one person to pay, if assuming it's 5,000 naira per month, that is your product, right? Can you get one person, right? 
if you can get one person, you can get 10. If you can get 10, you can get 100, right? So it's not, it then becomes an issue of, okay, how do you scale that with marketing, right? How do you scale that for with, with growth? Um, if you decide to go the, the VC route, I would recommend that you already start building a relationship with VCs and investors and all of that before you, you actually need their money, right? Um, the reality is VCs are very relationship-driven, right? It's easy to think that, okay, I can just apply on their website and all of that, but I've heard it directly from a, a number of VCs that it's usually a lot about relationship. Like, um, I think it was E of an African Future that mentioned that most times the startups that they invest in, like, are the ones that people refer to them and say, hey, check these guys out, right? So you want to build a relationship as early as possible with people, not be far before you actually need the money, right? Um, try to add value in the community, let them kind of know you, try and build a relationship and all of that. So those are like two thoughts that I have regarding um, funding. Um, and I hope that was helpful. Thanks. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I like what you said, like investors want traction. And you need money to get traction. So it's almost like a vicious cycle. So when you are not so caught up on, I need investor money as your only plan to actually get to that traction point, I think you'll go a long way. So those are definitely some great points. Cynthia, I see Cynthia wants to um, talk about this a bit. Uh, yes. Thank you very much. Um, I really love what Charles said about, you know, the 1% that I you know, getting funding are the loudest, right? So everywhere you look, TechCrunch, TechCabal, Benjamin Dada, there's always somebody raising funds. And you get into this um, mindset or this idea that, oh, I need to raise funds for my business to actually grow. Well, let me give you another fact. Um, many of these companies that actually raise funds, most of the time, we don't hear about them again, right? We don't see um, their product actually scaling. Money isn't really the solution to the problem of a bad product. Um, what money does um, to most products or to all products is it scales the how bad the product is or it scales how good the product is. So if your product is originally or has the gene of being a very bad product with no value, with no customer value, when you put money into that, it actually makes it even worse, right? And most of the time, investors are not usually like the best startup advisors or product advisors. They are the best financial advisors because they are, their goal is to give you fund or they receive fund from people in order to actually make that scale. And so what happens is that you get funding and most of the time, like you are, you are expected to make a bad product, you know, make a bad product work, right? So what you really want to do during that phase when, there is no funding is first just acknowledge that you do not need, and I'm being very honest, you do not need VC fund to actually scale, especially at the early stage. Remember that there are different phases, right? So at the early stage, during that um, early stage, you do not need VC fund to actually build the product. You may need VC fund to scale the product, but you don't need VC fund to build the product, right? And when you have that mindset, you think about strategy very differently. Um, People may say invest in marketing for your product to go viral. I would say employ interesting marketing techniques for your product to go viral. There are so many techniques. In, for example, referral techniques. For example, virality techniques. So a case of um, for every time, I'll use an example, Evite, an electronic um, invite um, company. 
mentioned um, them earlier. So for people to send an invite uh, or an invite, they send the invite link to someone and they probably send it to like 100 people that they're inviting for their event. And so that product gets seen by 100 people because of one person using the platform, right? So really think about how, think about, you think about strategy very differently. There's something about when, there's something about when you don't have a lot of funding, you become more creative, right? So look at the opportunities that you have because of the fact that you don't have access to lots of funding and then use that to your advantage. Think about how you can make your product actually get that multiple effect. And just like Charles said, right, get one person to to actually buy the product and watch out for your unit economics. Because even though you have a fantastic product and it's gaining traction, but the unit economics just doesn't work, there's a very high chance that it may not really lead to profitability. And what you have at the end of, of a startup journey is that they have to do a trade sale or a merger and acquisition. They have to probably sell the company, right? It may not necessarily get to have the ch- a chance of, you know, getting to IPO or even becoming a huge company in the future, like the Amazons and the Facebooks, right? So that's really important. This, I, I run a podcast and what I do is I tell stories, startup stories, because I enjoy startup stories. There's just something about history. History usually repeats itself. So I just love um, listening and learning and reading lots of stories. So I share them on my podcast. And there's something I've seen with all different startups that I've studied right? If you put all their journey together, there are usually two phases of a startup life, right? Yeah, usually two phases of a startup life. The first phase is where you are going out and you're really looking for money, right? Uh, So yeah, you're, you're the one out there trying to get funding. And there's the other phase where people are looking, chasing after you to give you money because they've seen an interesting company, right? One thing I've seen is that all companies, right, or all companies ha- go through this phase, but most companies don't get to the phase of where people are looking for them, right? And the reason why is because they give up, right? They give up too soon, right? So, but in your startup life, you're going to go through those two phases. So the question is, how do you build that resilience and, and, and consistency so that you are building a product where people are really chasing after. And there are so many ways, but I think one major way is talk about the traction that you're gaining, right? And just like Charles mentioned, right, um, it's relationships and it's really traction. I'll give an example. There's, there's a startup that um, needed to launch a product, but they were trying to get the attention of, of, of one VC. And so what they did, they, the, the VC said no, obviously, but what they did over the period of time was that they sent emails regularly to the VC saying, oh, this month we get we got 20, 20 com- customers. The next month, oh, we gained five hundred customers. The next month, we gained one thousand customers. By the time they did this consistently, and the VC had to invite them for a meeting, and they were able to get funding from from this from the VC, right? So communicate this either through your social media platform, through the company's page as well. People are actually watching, and it would not take long for you to actually find the funding that you need to scale your company. And lastly. Um, VC fund is not like you really need to study what VC fund is about. It looks exciting. It looks really interesting, but there are so many hidden clauses that you need to learn about before you go on and chase after it. Yeah, that's it for now. Yeah, yeah that's so many great points. And there are so many great points. Um, yeah, thank you so much. All right. So I do, I think, um, I don't know if anybody, I think we have time for just one more question. 
I know Zion wanted to. Okay, I see Oisim Maye. Okay, let me. Okay, so you can go ahead and ask a question. I don't want to. Yeah, go ahead and ask a question. Oisim Maye. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing it right. You can go ahead. Just to, just to come behind what um, Charles and Cynthia said with respect to um, access to funds, because I think um, the very first thing is to build a product that solves a particular problem and try to get your first customer. And based on that, any VC is just like it's just like when you have something that is valuable, anybody will be willing to partner with you on that project. And um, part of also what we do in terms of because there are a number of things that we use to use that is also make introductions to VCs for um, founders with great ideas. So um, good thing is that you have um, um, Karen. Karen is here. So Karen also helps um, founders become investor ready and all of that. So there are just some basic things that need to be on board before you actually even, you know, consider, uh, you know, raising funds. And these are the things that we kind of like help startups with. And, um, yeah, feel free to connect with Karen or Startup Launch Code. And if um, I get it's great, we can actually introduce it to VCs. But ideally, it has to be, the product has to solve a particular need in the marketplace and um, have the potential to scale because that is what any VC wants anyway. So I think that'll be all from, from me for now. All right, great. Thank you so much, our speaker, Zion. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who joined us and has like just listened, stayed on, participated. Um, Esther, were you saying something? Yes, um, somebody wanted to ask the question, but... Okay. person here, but they're not requesting anymore. Um, okay. So I think if they still want to ask. Okay. Um. Okay, I saw someone, but I'm guessing like they put down their hands or they took away their request or something. All right. Yes. Okay, all right. Okay, that's cool. But thank you guys so much. Thank you for everyone listening. It was a great, great um, conversation. I think we've learned a lot. So thank you, everyone. Um, we'll be having our next Twitter space in two weeks on the um, 19th of March. May, sorry. Okay, I see Audrey wants to say something quickly. I know his question was just answered, so let me let's just hear if he has something to say, and then we'll call it a day. All right, Audrey, yeah, go ahead. Really quick, uh, I'm just, I don't know if I... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Actually, I wanted to answer because I believe um, we're in the technology space here, yeah, and it's really what we're talking about software implementation. Um, in the kind of stuff you have in the market right now, you need several hands in terms of building, right? So it, it's so difficult to have a particular developer that can build the front end, the back end, develop the database, take care of the developers' operations, and, and so forth and so on. So, uh, the, another challenge that comes in the game in the startup is the idea of getting team members to play along because at the end of the day, you have this great idea. Maybe, maybe probably a back-end developer, you have this great idea of what you want to build. But then you now need a team to play along because at the end of the day, you also probably might be needing somebody to take care of the DevOps. You might be needing somebody that will take care of the front-end implementation. You might also be needing, you probably might be needing a product manager or some sort of thing. I know, I know, like everybody said here, yeah, that when you're starting up, you have to start small. 
But at the end of the day, when you're trying to build a scalable application right now in our present industry of implementation, you're not looking at using a WordPress to start. You're not looking at using a, a, a vanilla JavaScript to start. You're not looking at using a PHP um, abstract to start. So you're looking at using abstract that probably might need several hands. So that's another, that's another big constraint because it's one thing to be able to do a particular part that you can afford in that startup, but it's another thing to get people to play along. Because at the end of the day, for you to get programmers or probably dev uh, DevOps to play along, you have to pay them. Of course, that it's your dream, it's not their dream. So they probably want to do their own job. So that comes in again with another level of financing. So, how do we tend to solve that kind of problem if the need arises? Okay, so I, I, I get your question, and that's actually very like, um, how do you get to even get to that um, market, product market fit? Like you need the product, you need, and you need funds to do all that. And I think there are different ways to go about that. Do any of the speakers want to just take literally like three minutes to tackle that? So I'm aiming that we kind of close up for like 7.30. Okay, Charles, I saw your hand go up. All right, thank you. Um, I'll uh, just I'll share my thoughts. Um, so regarding this, my, my own thinking is what do you actually have? Um, not necessarily what you don't have, right? Um, I've seen different examples where different people just figured out what they had and they were able to take advantage of it. And I'll give an example, right? Um, you might be a, a developer, right? And you don't have the money to hire like designers, marketers, and all of that, but you might have friends, right? You might have friends that you might have a friend or a colleague that is a designer or you might have someone that you've worked with in the past that is a marketing person. That's something that you have, right? When you don't have funds, you have to be creative, right? You have to really think about things very, very differently, right? Think about, okay, what, what do I have? Because I kind of feel like most times we have something, right? Um, in our own case, Bizop, um, when we when we were starting, one of the things that we had I had learned right from time was that you need a technical co-founder. I'm a product and design guy, right? My co-founder was, was like a process consultant, like a business consultant. We didn't have a developer, right? We just figured out what can we even do to start, right? I hired a product designer. Um, I didn't even do the design myself which I could have, right? But we had a little bit of money to do that, right? I had a product designer, hired two engineers that had, um, one engineer that I had worked with in the past, asked the product designer to recommend another engineer. He did, and that's how we built version one. It then became very easy, or at least easier, for us to get a technical co-founder when we could not show him what we had already built. This was someone that was ex-Andela, had a very a good job that he was working at, was not looking for a startup to join. But when he saw what we were trying to do, saw that we had put in effort already, the product was already making money, it was easier for us to get him on board, right? So I kind of feel like um, startup founders should kind of don't overthink the entire thing, right? Don't assume that you're going to use the same approach that other people that are funded already have all the resources, have, right? Just kind of figure out what, what do you have right now? What's the basic, what's the most basic way you can start? And please don't also, just for the sake of other people, right? Maybe it doesn't work in your own case. Um, don't overthink technology, right? Depending on what you are building. There are many startups that don't even need to be built yet to be validated. 
There are many ways of validating a startup that it might just be a WordPress landing page. It might be a WordPress or WooCommerce or vanilla JavaScript or PHP, basic PHP that you use to build your version one. The major thing is what next? What's the next thing? If you've not validated your startup, you don't really want to start spending too much money on hiring people or spending too much time on building something that you, you build for the next six months. And when you launch, no traction. People don't want it, right? So as quickly as possible and ask yourself, what do I actually have right now? Those would be my thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. I think you answered that really, really well. Um, and I think that's like really great. All right. So thank you guys so much. I think it's been a, I think it's been a great um, session. Thank you for joining. Definitely give us a follow. We have our next Twitter space on the night, on the 19th, I think. Yes, on the 19th of May. So Sorry about that, guys. And thank you. And thank you, Zion. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Karen. And thank you, Cynthia. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.